Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to a special birthday edition of Vermont Viewpoint, the live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic, and today we're talking about politics, as usual, book publishing, and what I now have to refer to as cannabis. Uh, I know it by many, many other names, but we're going to delve deep in hour two into the new cannabis marijuana. That's marijuana for all you people my age. Uh, and, and we're going to delve deep into the new retail marketplace uh, its regulation and the people trying to get this uh, marketplace off the ground in Vermont. We will take your calls at 802-244-1777, your emails at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We are live on the radio and streaming on the web at wdevradio.com. Did I say that this is a special birthday edition? So when you call in, you have to say something nice about your birthday host. Okay, that's that's the guideline for today. But first, some headlines. It's perhaps a testament to what our story, uh, what our society has become, that a story in last Sunday's New York Times about the presidential election of 1980 caused barely a ripple. The story by respected senior White House correspondent Peter Baker, said that the campaign of Ronald Reagan worked the middle worked its Middle Eastern allies to sway the election to Reagan and away from the incumbent Democrat Jimmy Carter. The central allegation is that a prominent Texas politician named Ben Barnes traveled with a senior Reagan ally to the Middle East to urge them to get the message to Iranian revolutionaries, then holding American hostages, to not release them until after the election. As most of you know, the hostages were released the day of Reagan's inauguration as he was taking the oath, and Ben Barnes, who then soon became the Democratic Speaker of the Texas House of Representatives and a very good ally of soon-to-be President George W. Bush, I know we're going down the rabbit hole here, would report back to Reagan's soon-to-be CIA director, William Casey, uh, via uh, a, a guy named John Connolly, who was uh, a Reagan ally. And uh, it, it, it was a huge story in the newspaper last Sunday, and it kind of just blew me away. And then... It drops like a stone to the bottom of the lake. Back in the day, we'd be talking about that for weeks. There'd be congressional investigations. There'd be who, you know, hoopla all over the place. And, um, as Jimmy Carter lies in a, in a hospice facility in, in Georgia, uh, I guarantee you he read that story because his loss, uh, stuck with him for a long time. Um, anyway, amazing story. Give it a Google. Um, a former state trooper under investigation for stealing items from police storage is now facing a dozen criminal charges of felony theft, lying to the police after state police investigators revealed that 
Giancarlo de Genova, 44 of Essex, um, has stolen a bunch of stuff up to a value of $40,000, including a gold Rolex men's watch, diamond earrings, Apple earbuds, and a designer wallet from the evidence locker at the, at the, the temporary evidence storage at the Williston Barracks. And then in the culture, in, in the category of our changing culture, there is this. Earlier this month, Phil Scott paid a governor, our governor, Phil Scott, paid a visit to Boston's exclusive, elusive, men's only Irish Clover Club. You'll be shocked to hear that the club has pretty much zero digital footprint, and Sarah Mirhoff at VT Digger did some investigating and discovered that it's a men's only club for where Governor Scott gave her a speech recently, and uh, former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, when he discovered that it was a men's only club, uh, refused their invite to come speak because they excluded women. Um, Scott gave a speech, and he was asked about it um, at his recent press conference and said, I don't think they would start anything like that today. It's kind of a tradition. He pointed to Barry's Matuo, an Italian-American social club that has historically only allowed male membership. It's just part of the tradition, Scott said. I know a lot of the wives of members of that who say, good, thank you, take him for a night. I don't think anything like that would happen these days, and I respect their tradition. Um, that's an interesting, I'd love to hear more discussion about that. Should the governor of Vermont be giving a speech to an uh, to a social club in Boston that excludes women? Number two. Is there a place in society for social clubs that exclude women or, on the other hand, social clubs that exclude men? Um, it's an interesting uh, – our, our social mores are changing and they're changing fast and uh, nobody would have batted an eye to the governor of Vermont giving a talk at a uh, at a local club that, that is men only. And I suspect – uh, there will be women's cl- there are women's clubs uh, that uh, don't want men so that uh, women can hang out together and they they listen to women um, it's a it's a delicate one and worth discussion uh, Betsy Pratt has died the former owner and matriarch at Mad River Glen Skiria uh, she was 95 years old went to college with my mother at Vassar College and uh, lorded over Mad River Glen in central Vermont for many, many years, ran the Mad River Barn um, for also many, many years, and uh, inspired both uh, joy, uh, awe, and fear in everyone who uh, talked to her. She was old school, if there ever was... Um, Old, uh, somebody old school, it was Betsy Pratt. You didn't want to cross her, but she knew how to run a ski area. Uh, so rest in peace, Betsy Pratt. And Willis Reed has died. So with apologies to Brady Farkas for talking sports, Willis Reed was the captain and center of the New York Knickerbockers 
in their heyday, uh, leading them to the NBA championship in 1970 and 73. I was a 10-year-old boy charting every single game via the radio, uh, and the radio broadcast was done, of course, by the great Marv Albert, and now retired. And Willis Reed was the hero of those teams, along with Walt Clyde Frazier, Earl the Pearl Monroe, Dick Barnett, Dave DeBusher, and future U.S. Senator and presidential candidate Bill Bradley. And it was Bradley who announced uh, to the world, uh, at least in the obituary that I read, that the great Willis Reed had died. And of course, if you're, if you're listing, and I hope Brady does this on a show soon, if you're listing the greatest sports events, and I'll take calls about this if we get some time on the show, maybe we'll do it Friday. If we, if you're listing the greatest sports events of all time, for me it's the 1980 American, uh, Olympic hockey team beating the Russians for the gold medal. But a close second, there's the Michael Jordan flu game. Uh, but then I think for, for my money, Willis Reed limping out on the court in game seven against the Los Angeles, Los Angeles Lakers and Will Chamberlain, uh, playing on one leg, hitting the first two shots of the game, uh, and leading and, and inspiring because he didn't play much, inspiring his team to a blowout game seven victory to win the NBA title. Um, it was one of the great sports moments of all time. And a personal note, I once ran into Willis Reed in LaGuardia Airport. We were waiting for a plane, and there he was, sitting in the corner all by himself. And what a guy. Uh, and, of course, fanboy, you know me, everybody. I'm really shy. I went right over to him, sat down, and said, you mind if I talk to you about Game 7? He goes, nope, I love talking about it. And, oh, no cell phones back then. This is, this is 20, 25 years ago. And, uh, no autograph. I'm not a big autograph guy, but we went through all the details about game seven against the Lakers in 1970. And he could not have been uh, a nicer, more gentle, uh, more polite, uh, more gentlemanly guy, a big hunter and fisherman, uh, from Beatrice, Louisiana. And uh, Willis Reed, uh, dead at the age of 80, and boy, that that really made me sad. Uh, I'll be thinking about Willis Reed today, and Betsy Pratt for that matter. We're going to take a break, we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about book, book publishing with Samantha Colber, who is the uh, owner and uh, publisher of Rootstock Publishing. We're going to talk books, and it's going to be fascinating. So join us and get your questions ready. Two four four one seven seven seven. We'll be right back. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos, including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group. We're more than just radio. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host, and it's WDEV, it's VT Viewpoint, and you can call us with your questions at 244-1777, but remember the rule, you have to say happy birthday to me before you get to ask your question. Okay, now that we have the ground rules set, we can get to the content here. 
When Amazon.com appeared on the scene and created a publishing behemoth that threatened the existence of small publishers and bookstores everywhere, our entire society changed. But years later, the book industry has adapted. Local bookstores have survived and even thrived in some places, especially in Vermont, and publishers have adapted too. So we're going to talk about the trials and tribula- tribulations of publishing and how it's changed and changing. Uh, uh, and we're going to talk about books that you can really hold in your hand because we have the owner and publisher of Montpelier-based Rootstock Books here with us, Samantha Kolber. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Happy birthday there you go. to you. There you go. Because I can't really sing. That's fine. That's <laughs> Good fine. Morning. You're 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 playing by the rules, Samantha. Thank you very much. I'm uh, happy to. I'm always always happy to say happy birthday. So, Rootstock Publishing. This is yes. you are the uh, owner and publisher, and this is a bit of a recent development. So, can you please take us back to the beginning? So let's start with what is Rootstock Publishing, and then we'll get into mm-hmm. why you would devote the rest of your life to doing such a thing. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I did just recently buy the business in October. It was founded by uh, co-founding publishers Stephen MacArthur and Ricky Gard Diamond. They started Rootstock Publishing in 2017, and they published, I think, three or maybe four books that year. And... Um, I'd like to mention that this year in 2023, we have 14 books scheduled to publish. So it's it's been a steady growth, which is great. And it's a small publisher and it's a hybrid publisher. Uh, hybrid means that there's more cost that the author bears, but they get a bigger rate of return in their royalties. Um, and if anybody knows anything about publishing, you know, it's just a matter of you know, how the book is getting funded to get produced. You have editors, designers, there's marketing, publicity, right? And when you're with the big five publishers, you know, they they cover that, but then they take it out of royalties. And oftentimes the author might get an advance with the big five, but they won't get the royalties until their advance pays off. And so we've kind of flipped that a bit with hybrid. Hybrid means the author is taking more of the risk with the upfront production costs, but they get more royalties um, from the, the profits of the books to make up for that. Um, and so it's a nice model. Um, it works for people who might not want to spend all the time it takes to try to get a traditional publisher, which means you have to go through agents, you have to query. It could take years and years. Um, a lot of our authors are local Vermonters, which is great. We love helping tell Vermont stories. Um, a lot of our authors are also people who may have retired from one career, and they said, hey, I always wanted to write a book. Now I'm going to write my book, and then they're ready to publish it. And so um, we're happy to help people publish their books that way, and that's a little bit of what uh, Rootstock does. So let's go back to the business model because I'm fascinated by that, and I'm on I'm on a publishing house board Chelsea mm-hmm. Green and White River Junction. So, so the uh, traditional publishers take sometimes 80, 90 percent of the revenue that's generated by the sales of the book. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Correct. And a lot of people don't know that. So let's say 
uh, yeah, if, if Random House is publishing your book, that's great. I'm very excited. And, you know, yes, you might get an advance, especially if you're a big star, if you're Bob Woodward mm-hmm. or if you're Jody P. Colt or oh, but yeah. Stephen King. Stephen <laughs> King, exactly. So they're getting big advances because they're proven commodities. But yes. the publishing house actually keeps most of the revenue, right? Yeah. And what you're and doing. Even, yeah, I'm oh, sorry. Even it, small publishers do it that way. I, I have a poetry book out in the world with a small poetry press, and um, I get 12% of royalties from my sales, and the, the publishing house keeps the rest. And the theory behind that is they keep the rest because they do, they have the expense of the production, the design, the marketing, and the distribution. Correct, yeah. And what you're doing is you're turning that on its head and you're saying to the author, pay me a fee up, pay me a fee up front, pay Rootstock mm-hmm. up front so that we can use that money to do all the work that needs, to, that gets the book produced and we'll give you more money on the back end. Correct. Well, I think it's a it's fascinating. <laughs> it, it, yeah, and we're we're different than a vanity press. A vanity press is just any publisher who will take anyone's money and just publish anything. Now we have editorial standards. We have um, a rigorous model that the the manuscript has to go through readers and pass our editorial standards. So it has to be a good quality book. We won't print anything just if you say, "Hey, I'm going to pay you to publish it." Um, we we are very selective and we're curating a press. And so we're curating good books that we'll publish. And so that's where we do kind of act like a traditional publisher who only wants to publish good books. Um, so I just want to make that clear because some people think, you know, you know, vanity presses are out there and, and they'll publish anything. Lots of typos. You may have seen some of these, these books out there and you think, how did that get published? And so that, that's a model that some people do. Um, but we're very um, selective. We also work with the best designers and editors. Um, a lot of our editors go through a local um, editorial arts academy that was founded by Susanna Noel and Nancy Marriott. They're two um, editors in Vermont, and they train people to be freelance editors, copy editors, developmental editors. And so we use the best editors, the best book designers, and we're putting out a, a really good book. Fascinating. And how is it going since you bought the place? You mentioned that you uh, are bringing out 14 books this year. That's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. I'm excited. Um, it's it's the most we've ever done. Last year, we had 11 books. Um, I think the goal for a little while, we were doing a book a month was the goal. And now my goal is to get up to two books a month. Um, I'm doing this full time now. I had worked for Stephen MacArthur with Rootstock Publishing since 2019. And I was part time in that role. And so, you know, I, I saw how, how much work it is to put out a book and, and I love it. So I said, well, now, now we're going to double that. Um, so if anybody has a, a manuscript out there, send it our way. We'll, we'll see if we can make a good book out of it. What made you, Sam, uh, do this? I'm always fascinated by entrepreneurs and people who, uh, change what they're doing and throw all the chips in on the middle of the table and say, I'm doing this. What, what, yeah. what made you do this? It, it was a big leap. Um, you know, I, I remember when we met Kevin years ago, I was at Goddard College getting my MFA. Um, I, so I'm also a writer and I thought I would be on the other side of the publishing industry, right? I've been querying, looking for agents. I thought, oh, I'm going to be a, 
a novelist and a, and a writer. Um, and, and it has panned out a little bit, not quite the way I thought. And so I started working for Stephen because I approached him about publishing my poetry. But he said he didn't have the poetry expertise to do that at the time. So he said, how about I hire you as a poetry editor to select which books we can publish? So then once I started doing that, then he saw I had some other skills to lend to the table. I started doing some sales and marketing. And then I kind of started just getting involved with a lot of um, even operational stuff with the business. And then Stephen was ready to retire. Um, I think Stephen's retired like three times, actually. Right. <laughs> he, uh, he started this business kind of as a as a retirement business because of the love of books that he had. Um, he spent 20 years in the music business and thought, hey, now I'm going to try publishing. Um, so he was ready to retire and pass the business on. And um, it took me a little while to realize that that would be me to take the business over. Um, he had another publisher in mind that might take it over. And then I, I talked with that publisher and said, well, I, I might not stay on. I was ready to do something full-time. I had two part-time jobs at the time, and I thought, I can't keep up two part-time jobs. It's a little um, little chaotic. So I thought, I, I, I told that publisher I wouldn't be staying with Fruitstock. And at that point, he said, well, I couldn't take it if you're not going to help run it. And I said, oh, it made me realize I'm already pretty much, you know, running it. Sure, it should be it should be my business that I can take it over and officially have it and have it be my my full time job. And um and it and it's working. I really do love it. I can't think of anything else I'd rather do with my days than anything to do with books. I love reading them. I love helping to edit them. I love helping um, the designer with the art design and the direction of how it's going to look. Um, sales and marketing. I love talking about books and getting people to, to buy them and read them. It was really kind of a, a perfect fit. And Sam, do you have offices or are you uh, doing it in a dis- sort of a dis- decentralized distributed model way where people are working out of their homes or other places? Yeah, right now we're all out of our homes. You know, after the pandemic hit, um, there was an office downtown, and it was lovely, and, and we were in it sometimes and also working remotely sometimes. And then, you know, after the pandemic and we realized everybody can do everything remote, um, we decided to um, end our, our downtown office lease. And so far it's it's been working great, except if you ask my husband, he wouldn't be thrilled with the hundreds and hundreds of books I have uh, lining our hallways in our house. <laughs> Yeah. So. Yeah. Join the club. You're right. Yeah. But you yeah. can always take them if they're in good shape and sellable down to Bear Pond and they will. I've sort of discovered this. You can, you know, Rob will take some of them and make them used books and you can get credit at the store. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm very happy that they're they're a distributor and, and they sell our rootstock books there. They will order them. So it's, it's pretty great. That's great. Sam, uh, yep. there's a big company out there. That we don't like to talk about, at least us us local bookstore types. Um, yeah, we call that, them the necessary evil sometimes in the uh, <laughs> in the industry. So yeah, not only can you buy books from Amazon, you can publish your book with Amazon, and they will buy your book and sell it online. So therefore, mm-hmm. authors and mm-hmm. you have to uh, have a relationship with them. Can you explain how that works from your point of view? Well, I'm not a fan of, of the Amazon publishing platform. I know it's great for people who want to do it that way, um, but you won't really get your book in bookstores that way. 
because a bookstore will not buy a book from the biggest competitor trying to put them out of business. Um, bookstores get their books through book distributors. And Amazon has kind of become their own book distributor, right? But in addition to a retail store, they've kind of turned the whole um, industry on, on its head. But as you said, bookstores locally, at least, are still thriving. Um, and I think that's because we have such a we're so community-minded here, right? Um, I'm reminded of, I, I looked at that New Yorker article where it talked about WDEV and, yeah. and how we're, it's, a, it's fostering community, right? And so that's what we like to do. So we like to, I think of our local bookstores as really the hearts of, of community because, you know, I'm a book person, so everything has to do with books. Um, so if you use Amazon to self-publish your book, just know that you're cutting off another um, distribution stream for yourself with independent bookstores. Um, most of them have policies where they just flat out will not stock an Amazon book. Some of them might take them on consignment from you, um, but it's really each each bookstore has their own you know, value around it, but most of them feel strongly that they won't use an Amazon published book. And also when you publish through Amazon, you're not getting any of the professional, you know, they don't know if it's an edited book. They don't, they can't really vet that the book is good. Um, you know, so, so there's that to think of. Um, now they are, like I said, a necessary evil because it is a stream. It, it is still a retail stream that, um, people want to use to sell their books. So when we publish a book, it's available in all the retail streams. It's available to bookstores and it's available to any online book re retailer, including that one. Um, but we work with our authors to, um, to work with their local bookstores. We help them arrange readings and signings um, at all the, the Vermont bookstores so that they can support the indie bookstores. The indie bookstores support local authors. It's a, it's a great relationship. So how do you, when you publish a book, mm -hmm. what is your relationship with Amazon in terms of uh, yeah, necessary evil, but you want to use that route to get books sold, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a relationship with them. They're part of our distribution channels. We use a um, publishing platform called Ingram Spark. Um, and Ingram Spark is part of this big Ingram content group, which is a, a major um, wholesale worldwide distributor of books. All the independent bookstores, or I'd say most of them, um, are using Ingram to order books. And so um, Amazon also uses Ingram to order books. So that way, when we're in the Ingram system with our books, both retailers, the independent bookstores and the online, the big A, can order them. I don't have anything to do with Amazon personally. I don't, I don't really talk to them. I just, you know, the books are up there. We do the metadata on the back end with Ingram and it, it all kind of pulls through. Um, it, it's a link out there that authors can use to sell their books. It, it has been helpful for a few of our titles that had a, a more global audience. We had, um, an author who wrote about, he was a judge and he was in Kosovo and Russia um, on a tribunal for war crimes that, that he helped um, prosecute. And so he had a lot of readers internationally that couldn't get our books any other way but the, the big A online site. So it was nice that his book was available there so that people, um, people from all over the globe were ordering, you know, people in the Balkans. And um, so, so that's helpful. So that's why I call it a necessary evil, because if you want your book available globally, then that's kind of the, the main global avenue is to have it for retail up on Amazon. Okay. Now I have to ask you, you're, you are a poet 
and a writer, mm-hmm. uh, and you're running a publishing house. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you balance those two passions? Badly? It's, it's a lot. Like the rest yeah, of us? <laughs> I, of course. I'm, I'm not writing right now. I haven't written in ages. Um, you know, I always have things percolating in my head, but I'm not really writing myself. And, and that's fine. I have, um, I have two novels that are finished. Um, they, I still kind of send them out every once in a while. Um, I, I might do my own novel next year or the year after, depending on, um, you know, how much space I have in my own production schedule. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm focusing on, on the business side and, and I think that's fine to take a break from, from writing for a while. You know, we'll see. And Sam, do you, Acquire books. I've always been fascinated by how mm-hmm. publishers actually acquire titles. Tell the audience how that works. Well, we have open submissions. Anyone can send in their manuscript. We use an online database called Submittable. It's uh, submittable.com. Lots of writers are there. It's how they find small publishers, uh, literary journals, lit mags, things like that to send their writing to. So we're, we're on there. You can go there, submit your, your completed manuscript. The book has to be finished. We don't take book proposals. Um, and then we assess it. We'll read it. We might pass it around to a few of our readers um, and see what we all think. And then, uh, and then we'll see if we offer publication. Oh, that's fascinating. And then the, just to go over it again, the author would pay you a fee up front in exchange. And, and, and for that, what they get is all of the things of, of producing, editing the book, designing the book, producing the book. But most importantly, because most people are not born marketers, uh, you distribute yeah. the book and you get it in, into stores and online so that people can actually buy it. Yeah. Um, we do a little bit of publicity. We do a press release, a sell sheet. We get reviews uh, before the book is published. We'll do some work getting reviews on Goodreads and library thing. Um, so, so I think we do a lot. We definitely do more than my own poetry publisher did. We, we, as far as uh, publicity and marketing, um, other publishers aren't going to help you get reviews on Goodreads or any other um, review sites. So. We're pretty hands-on. I think it's an article of faith among authors that uh, to complain about their publisher. <laughs> yeah. Right. They, yeah. They promise you that they'll. They, <laughs> they promise you the New York Times book review, and then you never get. It never happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, unless you know somebody at the New York Times, it's that's that's a hard one. Um, we focus. We're. I kind of. I'm in the mindset. Like I said, we have a lot of Vermont books, although we do have books from all over the globe, but. You know, I'm kind of in that mindset, you know, what, what's that phrase? Think globally, act locally. Yeah. So I focus on the, you know, the small circles of what we can do and it goes out from there, right? If you get a review in the seven days, then you build out and then maybe you get something in the Boston Globe and then maybe you get something in the New York, you know, it kind of goes out from there. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It went, just because you write a book, it does not mean you're going on Terry Gross. Uh, uh, fresh air with Terry Gross of the New York <laughs> we, Times. We can dream. Actually, we have we have a book coming out this summer where the protagonist, one of the protagonists, is a, a novelist, and he keeps having dreams that he's on, not dreams, but he just has these uh, imaginary conversations with himself that he's on Terry Gross, and it's so funny because as a, as a writer, like we've all done that. Um, yeah. So that's a book coming out this summer. It's called The Funny Moon by Chris Lincoln. He's um, a Vermont author, and uh, I'm excited about that one. 
Okay. And Sam, where can people find you if they have their book and their completed manuscript? Where can they find you online? They can go to our website, rootstockpublishing.com. Um, they'll find a submissions button there. They'll find an email. I'm at info at rootstockpublishing.com. They can send me an email, ask any questions they want. Always happy to talk about books. And we're very transparent. You can visit the website and find out exactly what the fees are, exactly what um, the royalty rate is. Everything that we offer is under the uh, About and Publishing tabs. Well, that's really exciting and great to have you local uh, so that you can – you can publish your book with Sam at Rootstock uh, Publishing, but then you can go uh, do a reading at Bear Pond and and uh, yeah. Bridgeside and and down at the Vermont Bookstore in Middlebury and do the do the Vermont tour. Yeah, and even the libraries. We love working with our libraries. We've had many authors at the Kellogg Hubbard Library in town. Mm, tremendous, Samantha Culver. You're kind to join us. Uh, the the uh, a published poet, CEO, publisher, and owner of Rootstock Publishing in Montpelier. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Hope you have a happy birthday. Okay, thank you very much. We're going to take a break. We'll come back and do some calls and some some uh, open phones and a little some headlines, and then we'll uh, be talking about cannabis. In the second hour, uh, you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis on WDEV. I'm back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I was just listening to that. You can call in and get Roger Hill's weather on the weather phone. Where else in this country can you actually do that? Uh, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but God, that is a fantastic convenience. And you're going to need it going into the weekend because it's going to be sloppy Saturday and Sunday. Looks outside now like it's the best time to go skiing ever. Um, okay, for the next couple of minutes, we'll take your calls, 244-1777. We're going to talk about Act 250. Hang with me here uh, because everybody has a desire and a need for an affordable house or apartment and it's uh, not news that Vermont is in a massive housing crunch. There are precious few homes for sale. Apartments are expensive. And working people, whether they be old, just coming to the state, or having grown up here and graduating from high school, college, whatever, getting first jobs, uh, or seniors, uh, nobody can find a place to live. Hence... Uh, the introduction and passage out of a key committee of a bill entitled S-100. It's an omnibus housing bill that is on its way to passage in the Vermont Senate. But here's where it gets interesting. The bill, in order to encourage the construction of new houses and apartments in downtowns throughout Vermont, has made some changes to uh, allowing those uh, that building to happen by making some changes to Act 250. Act 250 is Vermont's development control law. It was passed back in about 1970, so it's 50-plus years old. Uh, hasn't been changed much. Gets blamed a lot by developers and business people for uh, slowing down the construction of housing. 
the supporters of Act 250 push back and say, not true. Way over 90% of Act 250 applications that are uh, applied for are are accepted and projects are made better for having gone through Act 250. Uh, the housing people say, yeah, but if a city like Montpelier or Burlington or uh, Barrie or Bennington, Brattleboro, they already have strict zoning regulations and design review processes uh, that projects have to go through. Why should they have to go through Act 250? It's a duplicative, redundant process. So uh, that argument is is now going to happen in full-throated way in the Vermont legislature. Governor Phil Scott made it very clear at an hour-long press conference on Tuesday that he does not like uh, the, the the changes that are being made along the way to this housing bill uh, because he thinks Act 250 needs to be changed and uh, modified so that we can build more housing. Um, environmentalists, I'm going to I'm going to single out the Vermont uh, uh, Natural Resources Council and others uh, are saying. Don't, you know, if you start monkeying around with Act 250, you're going to water it down to the point where we're not going to recognize our traditional downtowns and we're going to start building sprawl out in farm fields and we're going to need those fields someday to grow food. Uh, so that's the, that's the argument. Um, that bill is on its way to the Senate floor. The governor said, did not say whether he would veto the bill, but there is a fight coming and as, as I've said on the show many times before, that fight is not going to happen with Governor Scott and the Democratic supermajority. It's going to happen with in inside the Democratic supermajority where environmentalists, pro-Act 250 people are going to square off against the pro-housing, uh, let's build more housing people. And that's going to happen within the Democratic Party, which I find really interesting. Let's go to the phones and take... Uh, We've got the board is lighting up. Fred, you're on the line. Welcome to the show. Morning. Morning. Hey, you know, the politicians are talking about making this these drug cartels a international terrorist organization. That's the dumbest thing I can imagine. They want to send the military down there to go after the drug cartels. Okay, if they send the military down there to go to the drug cartels, how are they going to protect the military in the in the in the uh uh, uh, casualties that would be would be occurred uh, to the uh, civilian population would be atrocious. It would be unbelievable. They couldn't. They couldn't. They're going to send the special forces down there, the Navy SEALs, right? They're going to fly down there, and then they're going to go into the cartel's nest. They're going to be all shot up, and oh, it'd be terrible. And then the other interesting thing is if they make these international cartels a drug terrorist organization, which doesn't make sense because usually a terrorist organization has a political a political agenda, but the drug cartels only have an economic agenda and that's to make money. So if you and I were dealing in drugs and we got arrested, the state police in Vermont would say, we're not going to charge you because this is an international thing and we'll just give it to the federal government and you can go to federal court and have it taken care of. So anyways, i Made my point, I think. Great point. Thank you for the call. Rich in Starksboro, 
Welcome to the show. You're on Vermont Viewpoint. Good morning, Kevin. I always like your show. Uh, back to the housing thing. Um, you mentioned uh, the shortage of housing. And one of the things that I'm pretty sure we all know is the short-term rental situation. Uh, anyone with low income can't, can't rent a house in, in Cavendish or anything because of the because uh, there's all the short-term rentals for the ski area and stuff like that. But now, one of the things I'm concerned about with this S-100 is, at least as it came out of uh, uh, Kishiron's committee, it did not have any restrictions on single-family houses that the grants they're going to get, like maybe $50,000, $100,000 from state funds to build the house, and there's nothing preventing them to turning that thing into short-term rental, and it's not going to help the housing if, it, if you're making more short-term rental houses. So I, I think we need to look at that, too, and I appreciate you bringing this up. Thank you. It's a really good point, Rich. Thanks for the call, the Airbnb short-term rental issue. I know I know Burlington uh, uh, banned the practice up to a certain level, and I know it's a big issue around the state. The... Uh, I, it's a good point. I don't know whether S100, that omnibus housing bill, dealt with this issue or not. Tell you what I'll do. I will ask the sponsor, Keisha Rom Hinsdale, Senator Rom Hinsdale, the chair of the Senate General Affairs and Housing Committee, uh, whether or not, uh, it does deal with it or anybody out there can go to the Vermont legislature's website and search, put in the search bar S100 and actually read the bill as it exists right now, and um, we can have a conversation about it. I'll do it before the next show. I'll even try to do it during a break to see if short-term rentals were dealt with. Um, I doubt it. I think they're going to leave. I think the legislature wants to leave that issue for uh, for local municipalities. But uh, I, you know, I know it's an issue. I know there's that balance between uh, you want, you know, you want tourists to come into the state and spend their dollars and go home, and those people need a place to live. And a lot of them don't want to stay in the Courtyard Marriott or the Comfort Inn. They want to stay in a in a, in a real homegrown place uh, where they can have the kids over. And you know, if if you're a, the parents of UVM students, you want to. Uh, you want to have the kids over uh, and make a meal together and take a walk down Church Street, but uh, on the other hand, it uh, it takes that space off the market, and so uh, uh, you know a working Vermonter uh, it, it tightens the market so and drives up the price for other units, so that unit is not available and other units are more expensive. And it makes it harder for working Vermonters to find a place to live. So that's the balance, I think, that's trying to be struck here. Burlington struck the balance by um, by banning Airbnb unless you are doing it in your home. Uh, they were looking at senior citizens there trying to make extra money. So that's the issue. Uh, we'll keep track of it. It's uh, Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. We're going to come back on the other side of this break, and we're going to talk about cannabis. And we're going to start slow because uh, no one's more over their head on this issue than me. But we've got two experts coming on the line, one of whom I know well, one of whom I don't. So I look forward to it. Uh, 
We'll be right back. It's VT Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's VT Viewpoint on WDEV, and it's a special live birthday edition. And to the uh, young lady who called the studio to wish me a happy birthday but did not want to go in the air, thank you very much, as always. Okay, we're going to switch topics now, and uh, and uh, we're going to get into cannabis. Uh, some of you know it as marijuana. Many of you know it. Uh, on by all sorts of other names, but cannabis is where we're going to go now because it is now legal in Vermont. Uh, but as I said before the break, no one is less prepared to talk about this subject than me. So what have we done? We've got two experts to come on the show to walk us through it, and we're going to go slowly because it's a big, uh, big issue. Um, Todd Bailey is the Interim Executive Director of the Cannabis Retailers Association of Vermont, a new trade association. And Kelsey Rapp is the Director of Outreach and Education at the Green State Dispensary in Burlington. Welcome you both to the show. Hi, Thanks, Kevin. Kevin. Thanks so uh, much. Good to be here. Okay. so and, and happy birthday. Happy birthday, Kevin. I didn't realize. Yeah. We're, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for abiding by the show's new guidelines on, on the special birthday edition. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Honored to be here for it. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming. Um, as I said, this, we're going to go slow here. Todd Bailey, maybe we could start with you and you could tell the audience when legalization happened, uh, why it happened and where we are today. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Happy, happy to do that. It's been a, it's been a long journey in Vermont, um, and we are still really getting the the marketplace established. Uh, the first stores were opening just this past October, which uh, took roughly a year to get from um, the law passing, which Governor Scott uh, allowed to become law without his signature. Uh, but what's most notable, really, is that Vermont was the first state to approve legalization via the legislative process versus a referendum, which every state prior to Vermont uh, creating a legal market was the, was the route that that occurred. Um, and Vermont is not unique uh, compared to most other states. Uh, we, we've gone slowly to get this done. Um, it has taken a long time and a lot of effort from numerous cannabis uh, advocates, both individuals, business owners, and associations, um, social equity organizations, you name it. Everybody was trying to get this accomplished for a very long time. And we're seeing the, the fruits of that labor, but we're also seeing some of the challenges that every other state has seen. Uh, including um, trying to figure out exactly what the tax structure should look like, which makes uh, often makes the pricing more expensive than the black market. And one of the primary goals of a legal market is to eliminate the black market. Uh, that becomes more and more difficult until we figure out exactly what that pricing structure should look like via the tax system. Obviously, we want to tax and regulate cannabis in a way that is both um, profitable for the state so that it can fund various programs, 
but we also need it to be uh, appropriately set so that we can have a successful legal market where uh, everyone from the cultivators to the manufacturers to the labs that are doing the testing to the retailers, which our organization represents, are successful in this industry and can do so without struggling, at least not too much. Uh, I'm sure, as your listeners know, all small businesses in Vermont are are, are struggling or it's tough um, to be a small business owner in Vermont. Um, what we've seen is um, kind of a, a flood into the market. Um, there's been a flood in regard to licensees, not necessarily product yet. Uh, we've seen um, 275-ish uh, cultivators be approved uh, to grow. That's at various um, sizes and uh, area, meaning you can be an outdoor grower in Vermont or an indoor cultivator, or you can have a mixed license where you do both. Um, predominantly, the growers in the state of Vermont are outdoor small cultivators, small farmers, small business owners, uh, creating really great craft uh, cannabis. Um, like a lot of what we've seen in other products in Vermont, I think we're going to thrive at creating high-quality uh, cannabis that will be sought after by Vermonters and the hundreds of thousands of tourists that visit our state. Uh, we currently have um, 50 retailers that are licensed, not necessarily open and operating, but 50 have been licensed. Uh, there's roughly 40 manufacturers, um, about 10 wholesalers, uh, so you start to get a sense of the interest in the cannabis marketplace and the industry that can be created in the state and create economic opportunities for small business owners. We're, we're really excited about that aspect of cannabis becoming legal in the state of Vermont. Okay. Um, and, uh, go, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so now, Kelsey, uh, you run Green State Dispensary down on Pine Street in Burlington. Uh, in my town of Montpelier, we've got a capital, uh, I can't remember the name, capital, uh, on, on, capital cannabis. Capital cannabis on, uh, yeah. so, so just for my, uh, amateurish eyes here, you can now go into a retail store and buy cannabis to, to smoke it, to eat it, and to do whatever else people want to do with it. Um, but you, you're in the retail side of this. Tell us, uh, right. what I'm missing. Tell us how it works. Um, and. Sure. Yeah. So, absolutely. So at this point, um, folks who are over 21 years old can go to a recreational dispensary with a valid ID. Um, in order to learn about cannabis, in order to get advice on what kinds of products will work for what they need, and can buy it directly. Medical marijuana has been available to folks with a medical um, license for many years now, and that's just been expanded to people over 21 years old um, who are looking to access the benefits of cannabis. Okay. So if you're like me, uh, did I say it's my birthday? If you're like me and you're, <laughs> you, and you're just turning 64 years old, you walk into Capital Cannabis and you look around and it's, it's beautiful. It's clean. And Lauren, the uh, owner is, is there. And, uh, and you kind of look around for the police to come and take you away and haul you off to jail. Mm-hmm. And after you get past that notion, 
you kind of feel like you're at L.L. Bean. And I suspect, mm-hmm. Kelsey, that that is what you and Todd and the rest of everybody in the business are trying to sort of get to is this feeling, is this mm-hmm. moving away from, gosh, how many years? Uh, nine, Richard Nixon, 1973, the war on drugs. I mean, we've been doing yeah. this for 50 plus years. Uh, and we're, tr- yeah. you guys are trying to move an industry into the mainstream in a short period of time. And that's going to take a while, right? It is going to take a while. Yeah. It's really, um, you got it though. We're, we're trying to destigmatize. Yeah. Thank you. That's the right um, word. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, bringing something out from the shadows that has been, uh, subjected to really unfair criticism for 50 plus years does take time. Um, the way that we do that and all of our, our, um, partners in the retail industry, we're, we're trying to really make it feel like a safe, reliable, predictable space where people who are uh, 64 years old, 64 years young, excuse me, right. can come and, and learn about it. Um, there's been so much misinformation as a result of the war on drugs, and there's been so many scare tactics uh, that a lot of folks do come into the store super hesitant. Um, there's usually an air of excitement. There's usually um, a lot of curiosity, and um, and once they get past the fear of of being hauled away or you know this is this is not a trap, um, they're right. they're it's... really excited to learn about what are the options, what are these different strains going to do, how am I going to address different concerns that I might have. Um, so whether it's you know for for recreational purposes or anything else, um, it is an exciting time for folks that, that maybe haven't used it since the 1970s. And they're coming back around for a lot of people because their kids are saying, you know, hey, this might help you. Um, it's, it's a friendly place. So we, all of our bud tenders uh, are educated as to how to guide people how to help people understand what a low dose would look like. And that's where you always want to start. Um, and, and to consume it consciously and safely um, in order to, to access whatever benefits they're hoping to get. And those benefits, uh, before we go to break, um, Kelsey, are, and I'm thinking of the non-party benefits, uh, sleep, mm-hmm. for example. Why would you take a Xanax or Dramamine or whatever pharmaceuticals you're taking, uh, to, 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 to help you sleep or, uh, anxiety or stress getting on an airplane or whatever? Uh, you, you would argue this is a natural remedy for uh, everyday usage. Yes, we would. Um, none of these statements have been reviewed by the FDA, right. and uh, and certainly none of them. Um, we we would never make any health claims, but the preponderance of anecdotal evidence is that people get um, massive sleep benefits, anxiety reduction benefits, um, even even you know discomfort and pain benefits uh, without having to turn to pharmaceuticals. 
um, cannabis is not safe across the board. And it is really important that people understand how to use it responsibly. And that's what retailers and bud tenders uh, are here to do, you know, help people find a formula, a strain, a delivery method that's going to feel supportive um, uh, without having to turn to Ambien or, or lorazepam or whatever it is that, um, that you've been relying on. Obviously, all of those kinds of prescriptions have a place and, and people working in concert with their doctors are using them responsibly, we hope. Um, but for anybody that's hoping to find an alternative that has fewer side effects, and less long-term damage to internal organs, hormone regulation, et cetera, cannabis is a great option. Okay. Todd, um, let's, let's talk about where we are in the regulatory environment in Vermont as this marketplace begins to build. There is a cannabis control board that makes sure that uh, that is trying to make sure that the rules and regulations and the rules of the road are done properly why don't you tell us where we are in the regulatory front yeah it's been um been a, a really long process i mean one of the one of the things for people to understand the context of the ccb and its um formation is that that this all came about during covid and and that created an additional um, pressure on CCB. They were appointed a little bit late because obviously government's focus was primarily on dealing with the pandemic. Uh, so the appointments uh, were later than they were supposed to be, uh, later than they were prescribed in legislation. So CCB was formed and was really under pressure to move very quickly with uh, limited staff, uh, limited time to get this up and running. And I think that is reflected in the marketplace, despite I mean, a tremendous amount of effort being put in by the CCB and its staff. Um, what has, has happened is trying to pull together. I listed all the numbers of people that are already licensed in the state. They worked through that back, backlog um, as quickly as one could ever expect uh, to get this marketplace up and, and running on time, which they largely accomplished. Um, one of the struggles in the regulatory structure was, was because of the lateness and the delay of getting everything up and running, uh, we saw uh, outdoor growers have a difficult time getting licensed in time to actually get seeds or clones going and have product uh, provided. So the, the regulatory structure now has kind of moved out a little bit. It doesn't mean that there are no uh, existing uh, uh, bumps in the road still. But what we've seen is a, a, a very um, new regulatory body get up and running very quickly, get up and running smoothly very quickly, and still figuring out kind of the last little bit of detail they need to, to, to work on in order to create a cannabis marketplace that's running smoothly, which I expect to happen over the next year. This season, uh, the outdoor growers can do everything on time and without the pressure of, of no, not knowing whether or not they're going to get their license. They know that now, and so the regulatory body is really there to help, and I think they've done a, a great job in providing that help for everyone in the industry, from the cultivators to the retailers. Okay. Uh, I do want to take a call because uh, Forbes is on the line from East Corinth. Forbes, welcome to the show. Uh, all things cannabis today. Yes, that's good. Um, I, I totally agree on the, uh, let's say, control uh, production of uh, cannabis, but uh, 
I, my, my question is, uh, the sales of the individual to the individual people, are they uh, regulated in any manner? In other words, uh, how much can somebody buy? And my, my question, again, pertains to some unscrupulous people out there take the product and then dust it with uh, everything from fentanyl to mm-hmm. angel dust to everything else. And uh, that's where some of our problems are. Kelsey, why don't you take that one? Yeah. Thank you so much, Forbes. You're absolutely right. That That is um, the risk of pushing everything into the black market or, or implementing a regulatory structure that doesn't effectively remove the black market is that you have untested, um, tainted product out there. And, and I think that the, I think that what the legislatures have done a really good job of is the requirements around, um, test, testing. So for potency, for toxins, for, um, mold and mildew, for pesticides, uh, the benefit of having these regulations is that the consumer can really trust what they're using. Um, and with every product being registered with the CCB before it hits store shelves, um, including testing for all of these toxins, that's what we can ensure is the safety of our consumers. There are regulations right now. The um, cap for any individual consumer is 28 grams of flour per person per day or the equivalent in edibles or vapor, um, inhalable options. Uh, the cap on per serving is five milligrams for anything ingested, so gummies and capsules and uh, things of that nature, and 50 milligrams per package. So basically, right now, you could buy um, a package of gummies, 10 gummies in the package at 5 milligrams each, um, and you can buy as many packages as would equate to 28 grams of flour. So I'm not saying it's clear yet, and I, I recognize that's probably a little confusing for the consumer, but there are limitations in place around that. Um, there are also some limitations in place in terms of the THC potency caps. So how much THC can be in a vape cartridge? Um, vape cartridges would be an alternative to smoking the flower for people that don't want combusted plant parts in their lungs. Um, and those are some of the some of the stipulations that the legislature has in place. Okay. Uh, Todd Bailey, tell us about uh, the trade association which you've just formed and what its goal is, the Cannabis Retailers Association of Vermont. Uh, sure, yeah. So we um, we just launched um, early March, the week before town meeting day break uh, in the legislature. And I think um, the the primary emphasis here is to be focused on, on the retailer aspect of the industry. There are a lot of unique uh, areas that each sector along the supply chain face. And we were talking with a lot of the retailers around the state and realizing that there there was a need for us to be the focal point of both um, public 
interest and policy interest. And one of the things that Kelsey was talking about that I really want to highlight is that she, she was talking about all the specific elements that add up to the retailers really being the point of contact and the primary source of information for all of the consumers. We are the point of sale and the people that are interacting more than anyone else within the supply chain around cannabis with consumers providing that education around the products, the effect of the product and the benefits of the product, as well as the face of the industry. So how well it's received in the state of Vermont and by the tourists coming to the state. So we felt like it was really important that people understood our collective goals, both from a policy perspective, but also as businesses and as representatives of the cannabis industry and the cannabis community. And that drove the desire to have this retail association created uh, for a focal point of all things uh, cannabis. Um, people can find out more about our association at our website, which is crvt.org. Uh, and we also are on Instagram at Canna Retailers VT. Um, please uh, jump on Instagram and follow us, and we'll be providing pretty regular updates via our social media channels and our website as the association continues to grow and become more mature. We're not even... Um, three weeks old at this point. So we still have a lot of work to do to, to organize uh, with the, the 50-ish retailers around the state. Um, and we continue to try to find new members and new ways to do outreach to the community. Okay. And then in the 30 seconds we have left, you just answered my next question, which is there are 50 retailers around the state. Yep. Yep. 50 retailers. We have about 20 that are committed uh, members uh, currently. We're, we're looking to try to get as many as possible, obviously, signed up, um, and then also looking for supporters that are uh, retailer adjacent uh, that might want to support our efforts. Uh, for instance, the point-of-sale platforms that exist that every retailer is using, um, they make perfect sense to coordinate with um, and to have their support in our efforts as they interact directly with all of our members. Okay, got it. Okay, after the break, we're going to talk about the challenges that the new association faces in the legislature and in the marketplace. Uh, we're going to talk to, we're continuing to talk to Todd Bailey and Kelsey Rapp. We'll be right back after these messages. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, Hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We are back, and we're talking all things cannabis today. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and our guests are Todd Bailey, the executive interim executive director of the Cannabis Retailers Association of Vermont, a new trade association, and Kelsey Rapp, the director of outreach and education at the Green State Dispensary in Burlington, and they are here to answer all your questions. You can call us at 244-1777 if you'd like. Uh, Kelsey, can you take us through, I, I'm putting on my dumb question hat right now uh, because no, I know that cool. listeners 
share that hat. Uh, there is CBD. There is cannabis. Mm-hmm. There were stores at which, there were dispensaries at which you could buy CBD in a highly regulated fashion. Is that world completely gone? Uh, and now it's all morphed over into the cannabis retail stores. Is that what's happened? Not at all. No. Uh, so um, I'm talking about medical marijuana too. Yeah, yeah. So cannabis is the plant, and within it there are many, many, many compounds. Cannabinoids um, represent at least 114 of those compounds. CBD. THC, uh, CBG, CBN. These are all cannabinoids um, that are represented within that family um, that have varying effects on people. CBD, one of these compounds, has been nationally uh, available since the 2016 Farm Bill was passed, legalizing hemp and the manufacture and sales of CBD-rich products. CBD is a non-psychoactive component, and that's something that people have been able to buy in grocery stores, in gas stations, and certainly in specialty retail shops since 2016. Right. We actually started as a grow store in 2016, helping people to grow their own cannabis, We uh, started carrying CBD products in 2016 because we saw the benefits that people were getting um, from from these compounds. And as they were federally legal, people could buy them basically anywhere. Um, Some risks came with that, and there has been some, you know, that market has shifted a lot since 2016. But still to this day, you can walk into any grocery store and find CBD in the supplements aisle. You can find CBD beverages um, next to the sparkling water. You can find CBD mocktails in the alcohol aisle as an alternative to for people that don't want to drink. So um, access to the non-psychoactive components of cannabis is really widely available to the consumer. You can order it online. You can buy it in person. Um, and with the legalization of recreational cannabis sales, now people have the ability to buy THC-rich products. THC being the psychoactive component of cannabis, it is important to regulate and help people learn how to use it responsibly. Um, so CBD and all of these non-psychoactive components are available really widely. THC and products that have an amount of THC that might feel altering are exclusively available in recreational dispensaries or in medical marijuana dispensaries for anybody that holds that license. Got it. Okay. Now, uh, Todd Bailey, the the legislature in Vermont is dealing, continues to deal with this. They've established the marketplace. They've established the Cannabis Control Board. But obviously, with any marketplace, there is constant tinkering and updating that has to take place. Take us through uh, 
what's going on in the legislature right now that might affect the rollout of this marketplace? Yeah, the, the, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, it's going to be constantly evolving. Um, I, I don't think there's any end in sight of that evolution. Um, so it really becomes a very mature market. But as we know, with even mature markets, things change. But right now, there, there's a need to really make some bigger adjustments. And the priority this particular session um, for us has been the bait tax, uh, which I think was really just an oversight in the original legislation, which included a tobacco tax on um, cannabis vape cartridges. Uh, that was actually eliminated in uh, with the passage of the Budget Adjustment Act, which the governor allowed to become law without his signature. Um, so that was one of the priorities for our association, this legislative session. I know for a lot of folks in the cannabis industry, uh, so that has been dealt with the other, um, some of the other, uh, policy issues that we're looking to address are, uh, the THC caps, which I believe Kelsey, uh, discussed a little bit earlier. And then the advertising rules, which are incredible. Oh, might have lost him. Okay. We might have lost Todd. Kelsey, are you there on the line? Sounds like it. I am. Okay. Let's continue that conversation. Um, sure. The, 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 uh, yeah. The advertising um, is is very challenging for retailers, right. especially for small businesses. Um, it's uh, the requirements that we have to meet um, take a lot of time, manpower, you have to have a pretty considerable um, advertising and marketing staff available um, to put to put in the effort uh, that it's required. We're also limited from advertising in most traditional channels. Um, you know, even pharmaceutical and alcohol advertisements can appear in locations that cannabis advertisements cannot. So it kind of ties our hands when it comes to uh, messaging to the consumer um, and the way that the red legislature wrote these guidelines um, feels quite a bit more restrictive than other neighboring states. Um, there are some thresholds that we need that we need to be able to demonstrate. So for example, 15% of any advertising audience cannot be under the age of 21. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of media outlets out there that have the data to prove that 15% of their audience is not under the age of 21. Yeah, that's for sure. And it kind of restricts us. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm not sure um, that I'm not sure those restrictions apply to uh, beer advertising. <laughs> Not to my knowledge, nope. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and and the control board, I have to say, is doing the best that they can. I really feel for them right now because they're just being inundated. They are required to review all advertisements, um, including anything we were to put on our on our own social media channels. Um, so the way that the legislation is written puts a huge burden on the control board um, and restricts retailers and, and brands as well. Right. 
Um, Todd Bailey, before the F-35 in Winooski came over your head and, and uh, forced you uh, to drop your <laughs> phone call, um, uh, you were talking about uh, issues in the legislature, the the vape tax. Right, do I have this wrong? You actually want the tax to apply to uh, to cannabis, right, so that this marketplace can get funded? No, we don't want it to apply because what it's doing is creating um, uh, an increase in the price that's an artificial increase in the price and allowing the black market to have a cheaper product. And that, that has all kinds of um, negative effects on the, on the industry, including safety for the consumer. Most definitely not a tested product, so we don't know that it's secure uh, and safe. Um, and then we are losing all of the revenue that's generated through the sales at our retail locations. So the tax being eliminated is a, is a great thing. The caps should should uh, be uh, reduced uh, significantly so that um, we have greater flexibility around the products that we're offering to consumers. Safe rules we think could be uh, amended greatly to create better flexibility and more opportunities for. Uh, everyone in the industry, obviously, including uh, the, the retailers. And really what we what hasn't been talked about this legislative session and that we would really like to see is something that's been used in the past, uh, Governor Scott supported, uh, was widely successful for retail businesses, is a tax holiday. Uh, there's been sales tax holidays, and all of the data that came from those sales tax holidays went up significantly. Um, so we're going to uh, propose and, and hope that we can pass a, a cannabis tax holiday uh, in the state of Vermont so that everyone purchasing uh, cannabis on a given day, I think we're going to propose October 7th, that would be the anniversary of legalization becoming the law in the state of Vermont, there'd be a tax holiday so that no one is paying that additional tax. The limits will be in place, so it's not uh, as if an individual can come in and, and buy more but they can get uh, legal products for less and help support all of the local small businesses owned by Vermonters uh, on an annual basis. Um, and October seems like the right time. The anniversary seems like the right time. It's not only a good uh, end of the growth season for the cultivators, but it's also a time where there's a ton of tourists in the state with peak foliage occurring. Kelsey Rapp, uh, so you're in this business at the beginning in five years, where just let's get in the prediction business. Where are we going to be in five years? I mean, if you look at some of the artisanal and craft industries that have come out of Vermont, I would love to see so craft artisanal cheese, craft beer, artisanal maple syrup. Um, these are all trajectories that if the cannabis industry can follow in terms of quality reliability, um, innovation especially. I think uh, I think that would be a great path for the cannabis industry. Um, it's an interesting consumer market in that people really demand innovation in this space. Um, there's, with the lifting of all of the state-by-state uh, -state regulations and, and relaxing on the federal level, um, it's been, like you said, 50 years of, of repressed innovation. So there's, there's so much going on 
and we would love to see Vermont lead the lead the charge when it comes to um, new high quality um, unexpected surprising delightful products and and we've got a lot of examples uh, of industries that we can follow down that road and Todd Bailey, uh, you were talking about some of the challenges. Where, where are we going to be in the regulatory environment? Uh, don't we still have a problem with when I go in and buy products at a dispensary, the dispensary, we still have a federal state conflict where the dispensary can only deal in cash with its banks, or maybe you could explain that to us. Yeah, so a lot of where we're going to be in five years, I think, is going to be dictated by what the federal government does, which right now I don't really think there's much indication that it's going to be anything but the inaction that we've seen over the past few years. But should that change, the State Banking Act is a, is a big piece of that, which would um, not only uh, hopefully open up the ability to process payments more easily and less expensively for the retailers, it would also open up additional capital. Investment is difficult in the cannabis space right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of venture capitalists are not investing um, as much or as frequently as they were in the past. So the financial resources are really difficult. And for a small state like Vermont, um, that can be compounded because there's not a, a necessarily a lot of in-state money to invest in these operations although we really haven't seen that too much yet given how many people have applied for licenses. And then, obviously, do we do federal legalization? Um, I, I, I'm very skeptical that that will occur. Uh, and so we're going to have to figure out how to operate within our border. Um, I don't think New Hampshire is rushing to legalize, but we're going to get a lot of that along the Connecticut River Valley. We'll probably get the benefit of folks from New Hampshire coming over, but all of the other bordering states have already... Uh, legalized, uh, Maine, New York, Massachusetts, um, and and really, it's I think a lot of it is we're going to have to go back to the legislature year in and year out, learn, adapt, and ask for changes that are beneficial to the entire industry along the entire supply chain. I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. Um, let's uh, another dumb question here. When you are driving down the street in your car and you have cannabis in your pocketbook sitting on the seat next to you, uh, is that, that is no longer a reason for the police to search your car or perhaps arrest you? Have we dispensed with that, uh, situation? Todd? That is a great question that I don't know 100% what the answer is, so I'm not going to speculate. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Okay. I I certainly don't want to be the uh, source of someone getting in trouble for doing something they're not supposed to be doing. Um, I'm not exactly sure how how law enforcement is handling that or exactly what the law says in that regard. Um, You know, certainly you're buying products at the store and you're driving home with them, so I assume not, um, but that is an assumption. You know, uh, Kelsey, yeah. it's a it's a great reason to have Bryn Hare, the uh, executive director of the Cannabis Control Board, on this show, which we will do. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yes, that would that would be great. To my knowledge, um, as long as there is no so the legal amount that an individual can have on their person 
is one ounce, which is 28 grams of flour or the equivalent in a different kind of product. Um, and as long as there's no sign of, of use in the car, to my knowledge, everybody's safe. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You cannot use the product while you're driving, obviously, and this is one of the concerns. Yeah, that's right. Well, and it's the same with alcohol. It's the same with lots of things. So, uh, Todd Bailey, uh, at the Cannabis Retailers Association of Vermont and Kelsey Rapp, the Director of Outreach and Education at the Green State Dispensary. Before we go, tell us, Todd first, then Kelsey, where can listeners find you? Yeah, so uh best way to find us is at our website, which is crvp.org, or our Instagram um, uh, channel, which is cannaretailersvp. Um, and they can always email me directly, too, if they have questions, uh, want to learn about membership or how they can support us. My email address is Todd with uh, two Ds at crvp.org. Okay, and Kelsey Rapp? Sure. So um, people can find us, as you mentioned, on Pine Street in Burlington, uh, right next to Pizza 44. And um, on Instagram, we're at Green State Dispensary. We also have our website set up um, for information and for online ordering, greenstatedispensary.com, where you can find at least 56 local Vermont brands represented um, and about 90% of those are, are Tier 1 and Tier 2 cultivators. Hmm. Okay. Todd Bailey, Kelsey Rapp, you're great to join us on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Thank Kevin. You, Happy birthday. Okay. Thank you. She, she, she adhered to the guidelines. I think Todd violated the guideline there, but, uh, but we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have them back on. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, that's our show for today. You can email us at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. If you want to be a guest on the show or send us a suggestion for a topic, drop me a line. This live show becomes a podcast where you can listen on your own time at wdevradio.com. Click on the podcast button. Please like us and recommend us to others. Be sure to tune in Friday when our special guest is going to be Natalie Silver, the campaign manager for now Congresswoman from Vermont, Becca Ballant. She'll be here to take us inside the campaign and how they made history. And next week, get ready to hear from Waterbury's own George Woodard about his latest film, Farm Boy. Uh, you can find me at KevinKEllis.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. I'm on Twitter. Ellis52K, I write about a lot of this stuff and all of these issues on my blog. Be sure to check out my new podcast, Conflict of Interest, which uh, dropped a couple of weeks ago, and a new episode will drop this Friday. Uh, and I'll be back Friday, as always. We'll be talking politics in Vermont and the nation, the snow in my dooryard, and everything else on my mind and yours. Our show is directed, produced, and Mastered by himself, Danny McGivergan. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Friday on VT Viewpoint. Live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.